Today's passage is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hello. We continue in our sermon series, The Beautiful Way, today. When I arrived as a young pastor missionary in Brazil, my mid-twenties, I was encouraged to identify myself as a counselor. Had I taken some courses in psychology and counseling? Yes. Was I a registered counselor? No. The thought was that people around me would be less offended, more open to conversation with me, if I presented myself as a counselor. In other words, I would have more opportunity to be a positive influence if I hid my identity. Within a few weeks, I realized that going incognito was a very bad idea. It was rooted in fear. About 10 years later, our daughters transferred to a new school. The custom at the new school was for fathers to drop off their children and then gather for coffee usually an espresso, before heading to work. On my first day at the coffee club, the fathers stood in a circle, sipping their morning coffee. And one of the men asked me the classic question, So, Ray, what do you do for a living? Sometimes we're tempted to be a little less than honest. I answered, I'm a pastor. The room fell silent everyone slowly sipping their coffee. If you're a pastor and you're honest, you cannot hide your connection to Jesus. If you're not a pastor, maybe you can try to hide your identity. But how then do you identify yourself? When people look at you, who do they see? Who do they think you follow? What do you influence them toward? On a hillside 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat down. His disciples came near, and he laid out the beautiful way. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Such a different way. The kingdom of heaven is present among those who are marked by these values. Their influence in the world is organically connected to the presence of the character of Jesus in their lives. This transformation into the likeness of Jesus results in surprising, delightful influence toward Jesus and his beautiful way. First point, Jesus' character within you influences others toward the beautiful way. 
To the disciples on this way, Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. The you is emphatic. You and only you. In other words, do not fail to be salt because you and only you are the salt of the earth. How could Jesus say this to a handful of Jewish disciples? We need to understand something about salt. Salt was found in every ancient home in the first century, and it is probably found in every home in the 21st century. Salt was a vital substance for ancient life. What was it used for? Well, first, coarse salt was rubbed into meat and fish to, to, to slow decay. It served as a preservative in a world without refrigeration. Second, it was a condiment used to season foods. Third, it was used as a medium of exchange in commercial ventures, referred to as white gold. For example, the salt allotment uh, given to soldiers serving in the Roman army was called the salarium. Our English word salary comes from this Latin word. So it was valuable. Those marked by the values of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. Note that the salt penetrates the meat. As salt, we are meant to penetrate the culture of earth with the seasoning, preserving influence of God's kingdom. Even a pinch of salt has a great effect. From Jesus' perspective, his disciples make the earth a better place. They're of great value. Yes, God has provided other institutions like government and the home to restrain evil. But nothing is to restrain evil like the presence of God's people living within the culture of earth. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are to serve as a preserving, seasoning influence toward Jesus and his beautiful way. Even a pinch of salt has a great effect. But then... Jesus provides us with a warning. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Saltless salt is a contradiction in terms. It's like water losing its wetness. For certain, salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a stable chemical compound. But most salt in the ancient world was derived from the salt marshes. It contained many impurities. The actual salt, being more soluble than the impurities, could be washed out, leaving a residue so diluted it was useless. It was still a white powder called salt, but it was nothing more than road dust. Jesus is saying that when his disciples lose their distinctiveness, they have nothing to contribute to society. The word for losing taste in this verse, it can also mean to become foolish. Disciples who lose their saltiness, who conform to the world, make themselves foolish. The wisdom of Jesus just is not within them. If they have assimilated with the culture of earth in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing and sometimes non-existent, they cease to have a function. They have abandoned their role in the world. When followers of Jesus are marked by the values of the kingdom of heaven, however, 
they have a preserving, seasoning effect on their families, the workplace, the neighborhood, the university, and the city. Is it possible to be salt on the earth today? About 10 years ago, my youngest daughter, Alyssa, was with me in Turkey. There she met an actress and theater director named Montana. Montana had acted on Broadway but felt called by God to write and direct Christian theater in Istanbul. She put the story of Jesus on stage by inviting both Muslims and Christians into the production. Alyssa was inspired. About two years later, she came home from high school and uh, told me she felt called to study playwriting and theater at Concordia University in Montreal. Quebec is the most secular, postmodern, post-Christian region of North America, and Montreal is its center, with the lowest average church attendance in Canada. Friends told me the theater department at Concordia was a dark place. When she completed high school, off she went. As you can imagine, her classmates were surprised when she told them she believed in God and then shocked when they found out she went to church. In one theater class, the students sat in a circle. They were to take a piece of paper out of the jar in the middle and then tell a story based on what was written on the paper. When it was her turn, she was to tell the story of a beautiful experience she had had. Alyssa told the story of coming to university. As the plane lifted off the ground, she wrestled with the emotions of leaving home. She was praying as the plane sliced through the dense clouds over Vancouver. And then suddenly the plane broke through the clouds and the sun was shining brightly on her through the airplane window. And she knew in that moment that God was real. And she knew why she was alive. As she finished her story, her classmates had tears in their eyes. You see, everyone has a longing to know. We all have eternity in our hearts. A few years later, she wrote to me all excited. She had submitted an application to the Fringe Festival in Montreal, and she had been accepted. And Dad, she exclaimed, the great news is that there is no censorship. I can do whatever I want. Oh, I replied rather cautiously, so what will you do? I will write, produce, and direct a play on spirituality. I pitched the idea to my classmates. Classmates, they're ecstatic. It will be called Emuna, Hebrew for faith. As a father, I celebrated, I struggled, I prayed, and I went. The play was raw. Actors honestly sharing their faith journeys. Some had no faith. The most powerful scene of the entire production, however, was a young Haitian woman who truly believed in Jesus, carrying on her back a young man struggling with his sexual identity, who was struggling to believe. And as she carried him, she recited Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. She recited it over and over again. If we are not in the world, that scene never happens. Jesus said, you and only you are the salt of the earth. 
If salt is to be useful, it cannot stay in the salt cellar or the salt shaker. Jesus goes on in verse 14. You are the light of the world. The desire for light, it's a common human longing. Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam all have their light festivals. Light, it symbolizes good as opposed to evil, purity as opposed to filth, truth as opposed to deception, divine revelation as opposed to spiritual darkness. When there is light, people can find their way. Where there is darkness, people stumble and lose their way. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Again, the you is emphatic. You and only you. In other words, don't fail the world you were called to serve because of fear, laziness, and compromise. You are the light of the world and no one else. Where does this light come from? When Jesus burst onto the scene in Galilee, Matthew cites Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 as a description of his arrival. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A light has dawned with Jesus. He is the true light shining to the nations. Later, his disciple John would write this. The true light, Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 and 14. Later in John, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. Those who follow Jesus have the light of life within them. Their light is actually his light. The world is the world of people, the society within which we live, often organized independently of God, often existing in rebellion against God. The world, it talks about being enlightened, but it considers those who disagree with its dominant narrative to be unenlightened, on the wrong side of history, ignorant, suspect. For Jesus, the world is dark. Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount will say in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If you do not have his light within you, you're in the dark. In Matthew 5, 14 and 15, Jesus provides two pictures common to the ancient world, a city set on a hill and an oil lamp. I'll read in 14 and 15. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The typical lamp in a Jewish home was fairly small. It was a partially closed bowl made of clay with a hole on the top. 
to pour oil in and a spout on one end into which a wick of flax or cotton was set. Being fairly small, it was placed on a fixed lampstand to give the most light possible. The picture is one of a small lamp lighting everything in a modest one-room home. What is Jesus saying? Our whole reason for existence is to be visible and dispel the darkness. We may be just earthy clay oil lamps, but our earthiness draws attention to the light within us. Hiding our lamps under a basket is absurd. The basket, it was a measuring bowl for grain. In the time of Jesus, an oil lamp was only placed under a measuring bowl to extinguish the light. Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Ancient cities were often built of white limestone. They gleamed in the sun and could not be hidden during the day. At night, oil lamps would shed a glow over the city. The combined impact of the many small lights made the city visible from a great distance. This spectacle is pictured in the words of Marcelino, a Nicaraguan quoted in A. Crider's book, The Third Way. A lit-up city that's on top of a hill can be seen from far away. As we can see the lights of San Miguelito from far away when we're rowing at night on the lake. A city is a great union of people. And as there are lots of houses together, we see a lot of light. And that's the way our community will be. It will be lighted from far away if it is united by love. With this picture, Jesus testifies to the combined influence of the body of Christ on the surrounding darkness. Note that Jesus was tempted on a mountain, taught from a mountain, commissioned his disciples from a mountain, and his disciples are to live on the mountain, visible to the people around them, present as light to dispel the darkness. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are to serve as a shining light, pointing people to Jesus and his beautiful way. Even a small light fills the room. Jesus says light is good for nothing if it's hidden. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which, which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Jesus says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the first time the title Father appears in Matthew. It introduces the special relationship between the Father and Jesus' disciples. Those who have come under the rule of Jesus are children of their heavenly Father. As children of the Father, they are to be in the world, secure in his steadfast love, allowing the light of Jesus to shine in and through them so that people around them might see their good works and give glory to their Father in heaven, not to them. The world sees the glory of the Father, his true nature, when we love those around us, are merciful, are gentle, walk in humility, and make peace. As we live by this reality of God within us, people are drawn to Jesus. Now, sometimes followers of Jesus face opposition. 
even persecution. Is this light enduring? Does it just flicker for a season and then get snuffed out by more powerful forces? Before coming to Willingdon, I worked for an international mission agency with more than a, a hundred years of history. For a time, during the first half of the 20th century, the second largest field of activity was in East Asia, in three regions. Missionaries were involved in evangelism, church planting, education, medical work. For a few decades, one of the mountainous regions was immersed in civil war. The missionaries stayed. They remained there. They engaged in peacemaking efforts. On one occasion, one of the missionaries gained the, the trust of an invading army and ended up leading them out of the region. With the outbreak of World War II, the invasion of foreign armies and revolution, the missionaries were forced to leave. The last one left around 1950. The executive director of the mission at that time wrote, The work is God's work and is in his hand. The situation calls for much prayer on the part of God's children at this time. About 35 years later, the child of the first missionary to the region was able to visit the churches. He reported the churches to be alive. In 2011, I joined a small team intent on discovering what remained in that mountainous region. If the churches were still there, it would be their first visit in almost 25 years. On a cloudy Saturday morning, we met a small group of believers at the central church. For a few hours, through interpreters, we shared stories. It was clear that we had found the church first planted by missionaries a century earlier. They had suffered much. As our morning drew to a close, I shared Romans 15 verse 13 with them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As soon as I finished reciting the verse, they burst into song, Hallelujah! Praise Jesus! He's our Savior! From our gathering place, we were taken on a walk to a street with a, a long white wall. In the middle of the wall, there were two small doors. Walking through the doors, we encountered the Bible school built by missionaries, where leaders had been trained, now used for government purposes. On the building was a small plaque that read, built by an American. What about the church? We learned of 11 churches in 10 townships. The Sunday before our arrival, they had baptized 17 new believers. One woman shared with me how she had recently been healed by Jesus, had then placed her trust in Jesus and destroyed her idols. The light of Jesus still shining on those hills. I'm sure Paul would say to them what he said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And then I'm sure he would continue with chapter 2, 15 and 16 of Philippians, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. A church on a hill is visible, seen for miles around. It is exposed to the elements, buffeted by wind and rain, but it shines brightly. So are we living on a hill or in a cave? Are we living on a stand or under a bowl? John Stott writes, the Sermon on the Mount is built on the assumption that Christians are different. And it issues a call to us to be different. Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long history, checkered history, has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. To be Christian is to be different. We might as well get over it. So when I was standing with the men at the coffee club and they asked me what I did for a living, I was glad to say, I'm a pastor. There was a long, uncomfortable silence after my reply. But the conversation eventually continued. Those men became good friends. Some of the most suspect among them began to call me their pastor. On the day preceding our departure from Brazil, many were present in church at our farewell service. Some were following Jesus. On some days, it is really hard to be in the world. What we consider to be light, the world calls darkness. Many of us feel weak, ineffective, hindered, despised, irrelevant, powerless. We feel overwhelmed by the political, social, technological, and economic forces of our day. How can we be an influence in the world around us, especially when we're a minority? Are we not too feeble to achieve anything? Interestingly, Jesus does not share our skepticism. While I was preparing this message, my friend Ted Clausen called me from his hospital bed. He had spent the last few weeks at Royal Columbian Hospital, trying to recover from a spiral fracture below his knee. Ted suffers from a progressive muscular disorder. He feels really weak, But God does not despise the weak. His power is made perfect in weakness. As Ted was lying there, he engaged the man across the room in conversation. The man claimed to be an atheist. In his weakness, Ted shared the love of Jesus. When the man was discharged from the hospital, he came by Ted's bed and whispered in his ear, Your presence in this room changed my life. He was going home a believer in Jesus. Salt and light are really precious in the eyes of Jesus, even when we're weak. Be salty. Be light wherever you are. These words of Jesus are not just for people who preach sermons like me. No, the beautiful way of Jesus is often best lived in the everyday things of life, parenting, shopping, Working, befriending. Donald McCullough, he writes this. I'm more interested in the little things, 
such as remembering to say thank you and to call your mom on Mother's Day. These things may not seem very important when compared with the major problems facing our culture, yet they may be the best place to begin. They may be the only honest place to begin. If a person can't remember to say thank you to her housekeeper, it probably won't matter much if she writes a major philosophical treatise on kindness. If a person is rude to his family, the angels probably won't give a holy rip if he preaches sermons on the nature of love. What's important to us? What's important to God? We're called to be salt and light in the everyday affairs of life, the simple things. Where will you be salt this fall season? Where will your light shine this Christmas season? How will the light of Jesus shine in our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our cities? Remember, one, Jesus' character within you influences others toward the beautiful way. Two, you are to serve as a preserving, seasoning influence toward Jesus in his beautiful way. Even a pinch of salt has a great effect. Three, you are to serve as a shining light pointing people to Jesus and his beautiful way. Even a small light fills the room. Maybe you are not a follower of Jesus, but you want his light within you. Hear these words of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, John 12. Jesus came to enlighten you so that as you trust in him, you would no longer be in the darkness. Jesus offers light to everyone. You can enter his beautiful way. Do you want it? If you do, pray with me. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to reveal who you are. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came and revealed the Father's heart, his heart of love for me. And today, Jesus, I acknowledge that I often walk so far from you. I walk according to the values of this world. I fail. I sin. I so often get, get things wrong. I'm so in need of restoration. And so, Lord, in my darkness in my brokenness, I pray that you would shine your light on me. I'm turning to you, Jesus, for salvation. I'm turning to you for forgiveness for my sin. I'm asking you for life. I pray that your light would reside within me and give me new life. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to abide in me, to enable me to walk in your way, to illumine the path before you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer, I'd encourage you to talk to a friend who follows Jesus. Or you can click that um, button on your screen, the digital hand, I commit myself to Jesus. Click that and we'd be so happy to get to know you and encourage you on your journey.
And I want to pray for all of, all of those who follow Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you again for uh, drawing us to yourself. And thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to abide in us. We have the light of life within us. Jesus, you're the light of the world. You're the light of life. You um, are the one that we follow. And thank you that you've invited us to, to, to be the light of the world, to uh, be the ones that have the joy of radiating who you are to those around us. So, Lord, may we, uh, by your Holy Spirit, love those that you have placed in our lives, whoever they are. May we be gentle toward others. May we walk in humility before you and before others. May we be peacemakers. May our lives just be graced with those values of the kingdom, those beatitudes. Do that transforming work in our lives by your Spirit, Lord. Jesus, transform us into your likeness. We want to serve you. We want to be salt and light in the world today for your glory. And so we ask for this work of grace in our lives, and we trust you to complete the work that you have begun in us. And now, Lord, I pray this over all who are listening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Jesus' name, amen.